Well, I think you'll agree with me. There's probably a lot more freedom in the world uh, before the days of smartphones and YouTube. And so this morning, if you pulled in the parking lot and saw me getting out of the back of a police cruiser, uh, let me explain, because that may show up on YouTube later, right? And so uh, we're driving here. Long story short, our car slides off the road, goes down a a pretty deep ditch and uh, hits a big concrete culvert, just tears up the front of the car to pieces. And uh, so I call Chris and he comes and gets my family and I'm waiting there and waiting there and waiting there. And so finally I said, hey, listen, I've got to preach the first service at our church. And so uh, I said, can you just take me to my church? And uh, so he said, well, I got some stuff in the front. (laughs) He's like, do you care to ride in the back? I'm like, I guess not. And so (laughs) as we pull up, I'm getting out of the back and uh, someone from our church, I couldn't tell because they're just, you know, it's busy. And uh, they got their cell phone out filming saying, Pastor Brad, what do we need to know? Pastor, so... So if you see me on YouTube later, totally innocent, totally innocent, all right? So, well, a, a little submission joke to get us started off this morning. I heard of a wife who fell into bed exhausted after a particularly difficult day and exclaimed, Lord, I'm tired. And her husband calmly said, my dear, in the privacy of our own bedroom, you can call me Jim, right? That's a joke. You didn't get that, did you? Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles. We're going to do something just a little different this morning. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. This morning we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, the second part of a message entitled Making Jesus Attractive uh, in Marriage. And so sometimes we we come across a subject where there's just a lot of questions. Uh, And the reason there's a lot of questions is because either A, the church doesn't teach on it, when it does teach on it, it doesn't teach the whole truth, and so, uh, or, or they're just subjects, there's a lot of controversy around, and so this is one of those subjects when we talk about submission that there's just a lot of questions about, and so uh, what I said last week is I would uh, open up the service this week uh, in just kind of answering some questions. And so I taught on this last week. I just taught through verse 1. And then when I did, I kind of sent a follow-up email out and said, hey, we're going to finish part 2 of this. And so what questions do you have related to the subject of submission? Because I know there's lots and lots of confusion uh, on this subject. And so what I did uh, is that I just allowed people to submit questions. uh, And I told them I would open up the beginning part of this uh, uh, sermon this morning, just kind of answering some of these questions. Now, what I did not anticipate... Uh, is that multiple questions came in. Lots of questions came in. So for the sake of time this morning, I'm just going to kind of walk through some of these questions uh, for a few of them, and then I'm going to save some of them for a sermon follow-up email tomorrow, and I'll answer some of those. But I couldn't answer all of them in one uh, service and actually teach through the second half of the text. And so what I'm going to do this morning uh, is we're going to walk through some of these questions. So, So let me just once again remind you, of why we teach things that are, that are often unpopular, why things that are, for some are even controversial. Uh, controversial. And so the, the reason is simply this. We don't teach around tough texts. We teach through them as our conviction. And the question we never come to a text, we never ask, is it popular? We, we, don't, we never ask that question when we're lining up our series. What we ask is, is it profitable? And so the, there's lots of things that, that aren't popular uh, that we teach from Scripture. But the question is, not is it popular, is it profitable? Does it have the ability to shape us and mold us and make us more like Christ? And so in First Peter chapter 2, verse 12, uh, he says, Have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, Glorify God in the day of visitation. So, so this uh, chapter 2, verse 12, starts the middle section of the book of First Peter. And so he says, uh, here's how you live. 
He, he, here's what it looks like to live in such a way that people see it's different, not weird, different, uh, so that they may inquire and you may give an answer that Christ dwells in you. And so that's the, that's the beginning of this middle section is chapter 12, verse 2. And then he goes into uh, from verse 13 all the way down to chapter 3, verse 6. He begins to talk about one of the ways that happens, not a way that we would ever choose, but one of the ways that happens is that when we live out the biblical principles of submission. And there's lots of spheres of that. And so, uh, so we walked a little bit through that in the context of marriage. The week before was in the context of employee and employer relationships. And so uh, we're going to finish the second half of chapter 3. So... But, but what happened again, well, there were a lot more questions uh, that, that came in than I thought there would be. And so, uh, so, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to spend the first uh, part of our time just reading the questions that were sent in to me and then give you a biblical answer that I'm going to teach through the second half uh, of, of, of uh, chapter 3 here. And so uh, because the weather is just, you know, just a, a handful of folks in here so you can spread out. If you want to lay, lay down and, and sleep, that's totally fine this morning, right? Just like whatever you want to do. So it's a little more of a conversation this morning uh, due to the weather and, and uh, just the nature of how we're going to handle this. So, so, so here's question number one that came in. Again, we are going to end up in First Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 7 again this morning. So question number one was this. It says, I've always thought I had a good understanding of submission. I have no problem being called by Scripture uh, to submit to my husband. I find it to be a joy, actually. However... I can think back to my first job out of college where my boss uh, fully took advantage of me, skills I wasn't being paid for, making me do things outside of my job description, etc., and treating me very poorly. Since then, I have often thought about what it would look like if I were ever in that position again to submit to a boss or authority, but also stick up for myself and not let myself be walked all over. Or do you submit at all costs for the sake of Christ and accept being taken advantage of and treated poorly. And so this is a question about submission in the context of an employee and employer. It's a great question. So uh, let me tell you uh, the answer. Submission is not the refusal uh, to stand up for injustice on behalf of yourself or someone else. As a matter of fact, Scripture says we have a biblical responsibility to speak up for the poor and the oppressed. And so submission is not just taking it or or being a doormat, but it is a call to be respectful and Christ-honoring in the process, knowing that at the end of the day, it's not my responsibility to engineer an outcome, that God is a just God, and if there's uh, discipline or or, uh, revenge that needs to happen there, God will take care of that. And so it's not uh, refusing to speak up against injustice. Uh, it, It is a call not to rejoice when you see them struggle or stumble, uh, it, is a, it is a call to not seek revenge or repay evil for evil, which is silent revenge that Romans talks about. And so submission, though, is not, hear me, submission is not the absence of accountability. It, it is not re- staying silent when an injustice has happened. And so submission is never the absence of accountability. The difference is that our motive and our approach in the process uh, is that it's Christ-honoring because we have full confidence in our just God to execute justice on that behalf. And so if you're working in that environment, listen, you, you should stand up for yourself. You should do it in a Christ-honoring way. You shouldn't try to engineer the outcome. You, should, you know, shouldn't be out for vengeance or, or even silent revenge, repaying evil for evil. But at the end of the day, you're placing justice in the hands of a just God. And it doesn't mean you have to stay at that job either. And so, no, it doesn't mean you let someone walk all over you in an employment. Submission is not the absence of accountability or speaking up when an injustice has happened. But that's a great question. Uh, here's a second one. Uh, says, and there's actually a few questions contained in here. It says, as a Christian, we often sometimes do what we think we should do as a Christian. 
but we do it without joy, without love. We might even do it begrudgingly. And so the first question is, is that better than not submitting as we're called to? Second question, how do we recognize that in ourselves when we are doing not so because we want to, not with joy and praise, but because we feel like we have to? And third question, how do we help fellow Christians recognize they are doing what they should just because they know they should? Okay, so, so kind of three questions there. So let me give the answer. Uh, first is this, doing what you should do when you don't feel like it, uh, is a mark of spiritual maturity. Uh, Immature people live by their emotions. Mature people live by their commitments and convictions. So the answer is, should I do it even when I don't feel like it? Yes, because that is a mark of maturity as a believer. I don't let my feelings drive my faith. My faith should drive my feelings. And so, yes, I do that even when I don't feel like it because it is a mark of maturity. I'm not a slave to my emotions in that context. Uh, second question, uh, when it, the idea of uh, how, how do we see that in ourselves, like when we're, we're doing it, but it's not for the right motive or those kind of things. Uh, he, here's the reality. Often you, you can't see the motive of your heart. And so, so many times you don't even realize that you're doing it, but it's out of a wrong attitude, out of a wrong heart motive, out of a wrong heart affection. And uh, you're deceived by your own heart, which Jeremiah 17, 9 talks about. And so the the cure for that is you need to allow others to speak into your life. You you need to be in a situation where it's an accountability partner or or a marriage context or a life group or or something where someone can speak into your life. Because let me let you know a little secret this morning. All of us this morning, me included, have spiritual blind spots. All of us this morning have areas of our life where our own heart has deceived us as to the true motive. And what's happening is it's showing up in our lives and other people in our circle of influence, they see it. But we have to have the humility and the maturity to let them speak into it. And here's the key, let them speak into it without repercussions. And if you can't do that, if, if someone wants to speak in your life, and listen, their motive is love, and their motive is to restore, and their motive is what's best for you, not those kinds of things, then you need to have, and someone comes to you and says, hey, listen, I, I love you, and so I want to share this with you. Before you even get defensive, the first thing you should say is, thank you, I, I need to pray about that. And you've heard me say this before, that some of the most profitable things I have heard about my own life have also been some of the most painful things to listen to at, at first blush. And so you say, well, I don't like that. I don't want anyone to speak into my life. I just, I don't handle that well. I get totally offensive, anger, those kinds of things. Then, you, then write this down, okay? Grow up. All right? And if you look that up in the Hebrew, it's pronounced grow up. Listen, we all need that. That's what the body of Christ is for, to speak into my life. I cannot grow, you cannot grow to your full spiritual maturity apart from the body of Christ. And sometimes the one anotherings are comforting and encouraging, those things. But sometimes it's speaking truth into someone's life in a very loving way. And so God uses the body to help us grow. And so how, how, do, I, how do I often see that? Sometimes you, you can't. And so sometimes you need to go to someone who's in your circle of influence who loves you enough to be honest and say, Hey, listen, do you see anything in my spiritual life? And give them permission to answer apart from repercussion or you getting defensive and all those kinds of things. So that's the second answer to that question. And the third is, uh, what do we do? How do we help fellow Christians recognize they're just kind of going through the motions, but their heart is not in the right place in regards to submission? Uh, So here's the answer. We help them uh, gently. All right? Uh, we, we speak the truth in love. Galatians 6.1 says we have a responsibility to restore them, but we do so in a spirit of gentleness unless we fall ourselves and be tempted. 
And so we speak the truth in love, and, and truth and love are the key adjectives when you're doing that. Uh, someone very, uh, very wise said this, that truth without love is brutality, and love without truth is hypocrisy. And so we're to speak the truth, but it always has to be in love. Now, have you ever seen someone who uh, wants to share something that that's maybe is corrective? It's a word of admonishment, which Scripture calls us to do one to another. And uh, and, and and for whatever reason, they they're very excited about it. Like they 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 like they can't wait to tell you what they see that's wrong with you. And so here's how you know if you're ready to have that conversation. When you see something in someone, but you're not, you know, should I say something? You know, is it my place? Is this the right time? Listen, here, here's a key identifier. If you want to do it, you're not ready to do it. If you're excited about pointing out their shortcomings, if you're excited about addressing their sin, then listen, you're not ready to do it. But if you come to the place and you say, you know what? I feel a biblical responsibility. I love them. I want what's best for them. I don't want to do this. I'm, I'm broken about it. I've checked my own heart. Uh, but, I, but, but more than a, it's an uncomfortable for me to do that, uh, what's more powerful is that I love them and I want what's best for them. And so when you don't want to have that conversation, that's when you're ready to have it from a heart motive. All right, so it's so a good question. Uh, here's the third. It's, it's a little longer, but it's very good. And so uh, it says, question. I do have a question on the topic of submission to husbands. This isn't regarding our marriage, sure, <laughs> but it is a scenario that we have run into frequently when working with, with other couples. Uh, the command is for the wife to submit to the husband except if the husband is asking her to sin. Uh, that area of sin can be very unclear for wives. Let me share some examples. Uh, we had two different couples we were working with in the past whose husbands were not saved. Uh, one was involved in pornography in an online relationship but refused to leave his spouse. The other was having a secret affair that didn't, uh, wasn't confirmed until later and also refused to leave their spouse, but they said later in the email that eventually they, they did. It was very difficult for the wives to submit when they weren't sure what they were submitting to and more difficult to see where sin was because things weren't exposed for, for years to come. So during these very difficult times when husbands are living that double life but not everything is exposed by the Lord yet, how does the wife live in a submissive way and honor Christ? Uh, we thought some specifics in daily life might be helpful for those who are listening. So, b- very good question. So, let me give you a general answer. Then, then, uh, then I'll give you some distinctions about dealing with a saved person and unsaved person uh, in that context. And so, I think we need to acknowledge up front that the call for a wife to submit to her husband is always a call to submit to a sinful husband. Do, do you understand that? That, that when we look at that and they say, well, they're, you know, they're, they're sinning. They're, listen, the call to submit is always to a sinful husband. The reason is that there's no other option. Uh, ladies, I hate to break the news to you. You are married to a sinner. Right? Guys, you are married to a sinner. And so the question is not, are they sinning? The answer is always yes. And so there's never a time where you're not submitting to a sinful husband because they are sinful by their very nature. And so that's what they do. Uh, but so when we think about that, uh, it's important to understand because regarding the question here, she doesn't know what she's submitting to. Uh, she's submitting to the Lord and the overflow of that is submission to a sinful husband. And so in essence, she does know what she's submitting to. She's submitting to the Lord and to a sinful husband. Uh, and so that, that's the only case. And so remember this as well. In First Peter chapter 3, the call is to submission uh, is to a un- totally unsaved husband. And so this whole passage in First Peter 3 uh, is written for wives who come to know Christ uh, and their husband has it in that culture. And he's still calling to, him to embrace your husband's leadership role. 
And so the idea of, well, she doesn't know what she's submitting to. Listen, uh, he's saying submit even to an unsaved husband, embrace their leadership role. And so that, that argument is kind of blown out of the water there uh, just a little bit. So, because here's the deal. Once we start off with the idea of, is he worth submitting to? Then the idea of submission becomes a reward to be granted instead of a command to be obeyed. You know, because then we start taking inventory. Well, I don't think they're, they're leading well. Or I don't think they're spirit-filled. Or I don't, they say they're believers. I don't think they are. And then, then all of a sudden, we, we begin to evaluate their behavior and say, well, I think they're, they're leading well, so I'm going to submit as a reward when Scripture never says it's a conditional thing. It's always an unconditional thing. And so the question, what are they submitting to? They're not sure what they're submitting to. They're submitting to the Lord, verse 13, as to the Lord. And the overflow, the application of that, is submission to a, to a, a sinful husband because that's the only option. We are all sinners. And so, now, until his sin is exposed, she has embraced his, his leadership role. Now, if her husband is sinning in an open, what I mean by open is known, uh, in an open, serious, and unrepentant way, like adultery with these contexts were given, uh, submission is not, hear me this morning, submission is not the call to refuse to hold them accountable for their sin. And at that point in time, she moves from submitting in all facets to holding them accountable for their sin uh, because their sin is known at that point in time. And as a matter of fact, righteous anger is appropriate and expected at that point. And so she, she moves. And so again, you heard me say this in the first question. Uh, submission is not the absence of accountability. And so if a husband is openly sinning against his wife, whether he's saved or not, uh, and she's like, well, I need to hold him accountable to his sin, but I can't because I'm submissive. That's not what submission is. She is to move from, from that submission into holding them accountable in a loving but Christ-honoring but, but honestly an accountable uh, kind of way. And so, but she doesn't resort to sinning against them in the process. She doesn't let her heart get filled with bitterness. Uh, she doesn't seek vengeance. And I hear this all the time in marriage counseling. Uh, yes, I did do that, but you did this. And so kind of, you know, I shouldn't have sinned that way, but you did. And so uh, let me just tell you this. Christ, our righteous judge, is not sitting on his throne and saying, oh, yeah, yeah, she's got you there. She did do that, but you did do that, all right? And so I'm to hold them accountable, but not in a sinful way, under the banner of, well, yes, I sinned against you, but you sinned against me first. And so she is to hold him accountable. That submission is not the absence of accountability. So, And as well, in those contexts, in both those examples, the husband was not asking her to sin. What he was doing was sinning himself and was unrepentant about it. And refusing to confess and repent of his sins. And so her submission is not conditional based on his repentance because her submission is ultimately not even to him, it's to the Lord. Now, had the husband asked her to be a party to his sin and invite her to sin? Absolutely not. All right? But, but the deal was they were sinning and they were uh, unrepentant about that. And so she has a responsibility to hold him accountable because what she wants is for her, him to come to repentance uh, if she suspects he is in fact sinning against her, but it's not totally known yet. So what, here's what she wants. She wants Jesus to become more attractive to him than his sin is. Do you get that? She wants Jesus to become more attractive to him than his sin is at that point in time. And one of the ways that Jesus is made attractive uh, is that when she honors his leadership until he gives her a reason not to when that sin becomes known. And then she does hold him accountable whether he is saved or unsaved. She holds him accountable uh, in that context. Now, let me, let me just say this as well. The example here was, was for unsaved husbands. And so in that sense, they're slaves to their sin. 
And so in that sense, they're not living a double life. They're living a life consistent with a person who is a slave to their sin. And so that's why the scripture gives a warning in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, gives a command uh, that believers are not to marry unbelievers. They're not operating out of the same heart affections. Their devotions are not the same. And so there's going to be problems in the context of that marriage. And so now, if you're listening, say amen. Because this is very, very important. And this is rarely taught in churches because it involves a subject churches are scared to talk about even though it's in the Bible. But this this is important to understand because I've had this scenario multiple times in, in ministry. Now, if the husband is a believer, when she addresses his sin and he still refuses to confess and repent, she tells the elders or pastors of the church and they invite him to repentance. If he doesn't, they tell others... They invite him to repentance. If he doesn't still, they tell it to the church. They pursue him in love, invite him to repentance. If he doesn't, the church disciplines him and removes him from membership because of his unrepentance. So what does it got to do with her? Because at that point in time, the scripture says when that person is disciplined from the church, we treat them as an unbeliever. And that means in every aspect. And so that means she was deserted by an unbelieving spouse. And 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15 says she is free to let them go. And she is no longer bound to them. So she is free to remarry at that point in time. And so when a church is too scared to teach or practice church discipline in that context, what happens is the person who is sinned against is trapped. That they have no recourse. They have no course of action. And so when a church says, well, we don't talk about church discipline because we love people. Listen, we talk about it because we do love people. And we want to shepherd those who are being sinned against. And so if he doesn't repent, Scripture says he leaves. Uh, and, And so we treat him like an unbeliever. Even if they profess to be a believer, Scripture says we treat them like an unbeliever. And that means in every single aspect. So she's free to let him walk and she's no longer bound to him. And she's free to remarry in the Lord. And also, if you're not a member of the church and submitting yourself to oversight of elders, like Hebrews 13, 17 talks about, there's no course of action. And can I just tell you that there have been a few times in ministry where a husband has been uh, you know, per- pursuing a, a relationship outside of his marriage, and, and they're not members of the church, but they're attending the church occasionally, and the wife has come to me and said, we need you to step in, we need you to do something. And here's what I tell them, I can't do anything. You're not members. You're not accountable to me. I'm not accountable to you. I don't have any oversight over your lives. You didn't want to be a shepherd. You didn't want to, you didn't want a pastor. You wanted a preacher. There's a different thing there. And so there's nothing I can do but pray for you in that context. But the reality is if he is not a believer, like these examples, or he is a believer, and he's guilty of sexual morality, uh, she is free to pursue a divorce. She shouldn't have to, but she's free to uh, in that context. So it's so, so a very good question. And it was a long one, I know it's a long answer, but I I want you to understand what Scripture actually teaches because otherwise that that wife is stuck. Like she's bound to them forever and the Bible doesn't teach that. So So here's here's the last one and I'll get into teaching the text. Uh, So here's the last one. So since so many women resist submission, uh, what is an appropriate way to let people know without bragging uh, what a joy it is to follow your husband's godly and gracious leadership? Uh, Sincerely, Tasha. Well... Well, Tasha, whoever you are, God knows your heart. And so in the words of our Lord, go on, girl, go on. Amen. First Peter chapter three, let's pick up the text. And I'll spend a few minutes teaching through the second half here. First Peter chapter three, beginning verse one, we're down through verse seven. He says, uh, I'm in the wrong chapter there. There we go. Uh, Wives. 
Likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word, then the power of that godly conduct, uh, may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any tear. And then verse 7, husbands likewise dwell with them in understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not uh, be hindered. And so, uh, so, so here's what we're going to do this morning. So, so I'm going to walk through a, a couple things or a couple uh, character qualities. And we're, listen, for the sake of time, I, I'm just going to be able to address these and hit the top. We're not going to be able to drill down a whole lot on those. Uh, but but I want to teach through a couple things here in the second half. And then I am going to address husbands there because I said I would last week. And if I don't uh, say a word to the husbands, uh, I'm going to get bludgeoned to death with mascara wands after the service, right? And so uh, remember in verse 1, a, w- a wife is told this, hey, listen, your conduct... Your conduct is so powerful and has such an impression on your husbands that your conduct alone may win them to Christ apart from a word, apart from badgering them or nagging them or shaming them. That's how powerful your conduct is. And so, so when I'm reading through that, here's the question I want to know is what type of conduct would be that powerful that an unsaved husband would take notice and become interested in a relationship with Christ? I mean, it's, it's that kind of conduct that is so uh, powerful and evangelistic uh, in the context of that relationship. And so here's the good news. We don't have to wonder what type of conduct that is. The text goes and tells us. And so I want to walk you through. He answers the question in verses 2 through 6. Uh, and so about for the wife and then in verse 7 we'll get to the husband. And so he, here's what this text says. That Jesus is made attractive in a marriage by, first, a wife who is trustworthy and respectful trustworthy and respectful. And so look at verse 2 again. What's he say? Uh, the end of verse 1, he says, he may be won by the conduct of their wives. That's, that's powerful conduct. But that, that an unsaved person would take notice and, and be interested in a relationship with Christ. What type of conduct would be that powerful? Verse 2, he gives the answer. When they observe, it lists two things, your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Now, th- this is a place where the original Greek language is actually really, really helpful because our English translation, uh, translation has kind of a different connotation to it. So, so in the original language, the word chaste in verse 2 uh, can also be translated purity or pure in motives. And most often when it's used in the context of Scripture, it is in the context of sexual purity. And so what he's saying here uh, in this is that a wife should conduct herself in such a way that she could never be accused of being a flirt. Is that when she's out or her husband's not wondering or she's not, you know, she's not hanging on other guys and she's not looking for their attention, their affection because she's not, you know, her husband's not doing those kind of things. That's what he means there. He says if you're a wife whose motives and the area of purity can be trusted in the affections of your heart, uh, that is powerful conduct, powerful conduct that has an impact even on an unsaved husband. That's what he means by the word chase there. It means purity. It means she can be trusted around other guys and when she's not in your sight. And so that's exactly what he's describing. A wife who is uh, trustworthy, who conducts herself in such a way that she never seeks to gain the attention and admiration of another man. Now listen, I've been doing this 14 years. 
And I've sat with lots of couples who have walked through an affair. And rare is the time, I can't think of a single time, when a wife was the one who was sinned against her husband and pursued a, a, an adulterous relationship. I can't think of a single time where a wife said to me, I just couldn't help it, they were so attractive. But I can tell you lots of times that a wife said to me, they just made me feel special. Made me feel that way. And so what he's saying here is, listen, even though that may be the context of your marriage, then you, God's call in your life is to conduct yourself in way, such a way not, never to, to, to seek the attention of another man that you're not married to. He says a chaste wife has a powerful impact. A wife who is trustworthy when she's not in her husband's sight. And so he says a wife who is trustworthy makes Jesus attractive in marriage. And then secondly, uh, a wife who is respectful. Look at the end of uh, verse 2. He says, when they observe your chaste conduct, not, not a flirt, can be trusted outside of your sight. That's exactly what chaste means there in that context, uh, accompanied by fear. And again, the, the, the connotation in English of fears is trembling and that kind of a thing. Listen, that's not what it means at all in the original language. It's the idea of reverence or what we would think of more often uh, as respect. And so he says, a wife who can be trusted and a wife who is uh, respectful. And so several other translations actually use the word reverence and against the idea of respect or uh, reverence in those contexts. And so uh, here's the idea. Ladies, listen, if you're listening, ladies, would you just say amen this morning? There is uh, nothing uh, that stirs a man's heart to aspire to be a godly husband like the affirmation of his wife. And the reason that's true is because God has wired your husbands up that way to desire respect. Uh, and listen, respect is, is not a conditional thing. Oh, if they were respectful, they conducted themselves in a respectful manner. If they could provide better, if they could you know, just fill in the blank, whatever the case is, then I would give them the respect. They have to earn my respect, right? We say those kinds of things. But Scripture says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33, it's not a conditional thing. It says, wives, respect your husbands. Even if they're not respectable, you respect what God has called them to lead that family. And so there is nothing that stirs a man's heart to aspire to be a godly husband like the affirmation of his wife. And Scripture never calls it as conditional. Matter of fact, think of the context of this passage. Listen, he's writing to men who are unsaved, who live in a culture where this was the law of that culture, that if they caught their wives in immorality or adultery, they were allowed to kill her without a trial. If she caught her husband, there's nothing she could do about it. So, so, so you say, well, but in this context, in my marriage, and my, you know, those kind of, listen, that's the culture he's writing to. It's a culture he's writing to. And so a wife who is trustworthy and a wife who is respectful, not because he earns it, but because of the position that God has called him to. And listen, respect is not empty flattery. And so that doesn't mean, like, I respect my husband, so there's never times I hold him accountable, that there's never times I speak truth in your life. No, listen, listen, the most loving and respectful thing you can do is to help them become more like Christ. But what's the alternative? If you have a husband who's not honoring the Lord by not honoring you, and you want them to be more like Jesus, ask yourself the practical question, will disrespect produce that in them? And the question is no. And so you've got to be honest about the fact that the only reason I do it is because it makes me feel better because I'm hurt. And so Jesus is made attractive in a marriage by a wife who is trustworthy and a wife who is respectful is what he says there in verse 2. And listen, I get some of you like, oh, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this. Can we disagree, though, whether we like it or not? That is the truth of God's word in verse 2. Can we agree with that? Can we say amen? 
And then secondly, Jesus made attractive in a marriage by a wife who works harder on her character than her appearance. Look at verse 3. Do not let your adornment be merely, and you should circle that, underline that word merely, okay? I'll tell you why in a minute. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine uh, apparel. So, now, now, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that you shouldn't do those things. All right? Listen, there's nothing spiritual about being homely. Amen? What he's saying is, do, do not, what, look what he says in verse 3. Do not let your adornment be merely outward. In other words, that's all you focus on. You're not concerned with your character. You're concerned with your countenance. He's not saying here, as some would interpret this, uh, that, that you, know, you, you can't wear makeup. Listen, if the barn needs painting, paint the barn. Amen. <laughs> But, I don't know if I'll say that in the second service. I don't, I'm decided. I was in a car wreck today. I'm not in my right mind. I don't know if I told you that. Rode her in the back of a cruiser. So anyway, he, here's what he is saying though. Listen, here's what he is saying. What he is saying is that no amount of makeup can cover up an ugly disposition. That, that's what he's saying. And he says, it's not wrong that you do those things. It's not wrong that you look nice. It's not unspiritual. He says, don't, don't merely be concerned with that. Because that's the kind of beauty that fades, but inner beauty, it's incorruptible is what he says. And so scripture says, he says, describes inner beauty. Well, what kind of, what's inner beauty look like? He answers, verse 4. He says, rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty, never fades, of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very present uh, in the sight of God. So, so what, what, does, he, does he mean that you have to have a certain personality type? Because when I first read that, I thought, well, what if someone doesn't have a you know, quiet personality? What, 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 what is he saying there? And so I began to look up and study on the Greek, and it says this, uh, quiet doesn't mean mute. And so if you see a wife walk around, she doesn't say it, she doesn't have an opinion, she doesn't have a voice, like, well, I just want to have inner beauty. No, listen, that's not what it means in the original language. It means tranquil or calm as opposed to combative. This is not a woman who lacks a voice. This is not a woman who lacks confidence. This is not some keep-your-head-down church mouse, but it's a woman who is not combative even if she has a big personality. And so that's what quiet means there uh, in the original language. This is not a woman who lacks an opinion or passion. It is a woman who doesn't do it in a demanding or obnoxiously assertive way. So, so listen, here's, here's what Orrin Ryder said. He said, the goal is to make Jesus attractive, not get yourself noticed by how you look or how you carry yourself. And so a wife who works hard on her character than her appearance. And the third is this, Jesus is made attractive in a marriage by a husband who submits to his wife's needs. Husband who submits to his wife's needs. Now, he's not giving up his leadership role. He's not, there's not a change. Listen, but, but what, at the end of the day, what he says is, listen, this is not a right to demand. This is a responsibility to uphold. And the responsibility I have is to defer to the needs of my wife. Look at verse 7. What's he say? Husbands likewise dwell with him with understanding. Understanding about what? That they have different needs. That God has wired them up differently. That they're emotionally, they're different than you. 
I remember a guy one time, he had a couple broken marriages. He told me one time, he said, one of the mistakes I made is, is I thought when I got married, it was just like hanging out with the dudes, but, but we went to the same bed at night. He was like, boy, was I wrong. He didn't have any understanding, is what he's saying. He says, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. What, what, what does that mean? Because it's not flattering what it sounds. He's not talking about intellectually weak. He's not even talking about emotionally because that's a temptation to say, well, women are more fragile. Listen, remember the context. These were men who could beat their wives uh, and, and have no repercussions. And so he's talking about physically. What he's saying here is don't use your physical presence to intimidate your wife into submission. Be sensitive and submit yourself to her needs. You don't just bully her and walk around and go, well, I'm the head of this house. And if you don't like it, I'm bigger and stronger than you. No, he says, listen, live with your wives in an understanding way. He's talking about bullying your wife into submission instead of deferring and submitting to, to her needs. He says, live with her in an understanding manner. And so, guys, listen, here, here's what that means. Guys, you should have a Ph.D. in your wife. You should know where her insecurities are. You should know what she fears. You should know who she, listen, because why? Because you're called to submit to her needs. That's what it means to live with her in an understanding way. Not giving up your leadership role. It's not flexing your muscles and I'm the head and I'll do what I want. If you don't like it, you know, whatever. No, 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 listen, it's live with your wife in an understanding manner. Defer to her needs. That's exactly what he means. You should know what she fears, what makes her feel secure. You should listen to your wife before you offer solutions. And listen, I don't understand that. Like when your wife tells you a problem, like you're just thinking, if you're like me, you're, you're just waiting until she finishes because you've got the answer, right? And a lot of times she doesn't want the answer. She just wants you to listen. Now, I got to tell you from a guy's perspective, that makes no sense to me. But that's what she needs. And so I live with your wife in an understanding manner. Verse 7 means you have a responsibility to protect her. This is the idea of chivalry. And guys, you may be looking at this going, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the wife still got six verses. And we only got one. Read verse 7 again. Husbands likewise dwell with them understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. We may have only gotten one verse, but our verse is the one that has a warning attached to it. So don't think it's light because it's less. It's heavy. That your prayers may not be hindered. That's serious business. That is serious business. I've got some other notes here, but we're out of time. So, so here's, here's what I want to do. I want to offer the same closing as I did last week. Not because I have writer's block, but because I want it to stick. Because we're going to move on next week in a different chapter. And here's what I want to leave you with. The best way to change our spouse, according to this passage, is to make Jesus as attractive as possible by letting them see him in us so they might desire him as well. Therefore, The greatest hope you have in changing your spouse is letting Jesus change you first so that they might be won, they might be influenced, they might be inspired by your conduct. 
Would you bow your heads this morning?